everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and I got a special show for you guys today. This is the 50th episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast. Hard to believe we've had 50 episodes. This podcast started as a class project back last June, and now we are almost a full year later, and it's still going. A lot of fun. Usually, this is the part of the show where I break down what's coming up, but today we're going to do things a little different. Let you sit back, relax, enjoy the show. We'll go right into our opening tip in just a moment. We're going to be joined by Martina Puccio to preview the NBA Finals right after this. Middleton goes behind the back and lost it. Lowry with the steal. He has Giannis behind him just to let it in. Stuck. A facial by Kawhi Leonard. Over Giannis Antetokounmpo. All right, we are back with this week's opening tip. That call you guys heard courtesy of TNT's Marv Albert, Kawhi Leonard, posterizing Giannis Antetokounmpo as the Toronto Raptors are off to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. Join me today to break down the NBA Finals, preview it, and get ready for that is the guy who I did my first NBA preview segment with this season, Martino Puccio. Martino, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Mike. Yeah, it's been a little while since we talked basketball, but I'm glad to be back. Um, this is uh, the most fun time of the year. It definitely is, in my opinion, because there's just so much going on with the draft, all these trade rumors circulating, and, of course, the NBA Finals. I mean, Yeah, for sure. Let's get into the Finals a little bit. Let's start out west with the Warriors, who are back again for the fifth straight year. I think only the second team ever since the 60s Celtics to get the five straight Finals. They sweep the Trailblazers without Kevin Durant playing a minute of basketball. To you, does that say more that the Portland's not a true top team out west, or does it say more about how good Golden State actually is? I, in my opinion, and I, I've said this in the preview uh, that we did earlier this year, this is the greatest team I've ever seen. With or without Kevin Durant, I, I just don't, haven't seen a team like this. And it showed again, and it's nothing against Portland. Um, they've they've kind of lacked playoff success in recent years prior to this one. This was their most successful year in a little while. Um, but but I, I don't think it's anything against Portland or any of the other teams they went against. It's just that the Warriors are really in a league of their own, and, and they proved it because there hasn't been a, a team since the 60s, obviously, uh, the most dominant basketball team of all time with the Celtics. So, I mean, it just really speaks volumes to them and how good they are, even if they don't have KD. Um, and you know what? They came back. They really had that, you know, championship pedigree where the Trailblazers just kept blowing leads, man. They had double-digit leads all the time. Um, the, the, they were playing so well throughout the year in overtime. The Trailblazers did. That was the Warriors' first overtime win of uh, this season. So, I mean, I, I think it always speaks volumes to, the, to them because – they're just so amazing. You, they, they reminded you how good Draymond Green is, how good Curry is, and how good Klay Thompson is. Like they really didn't need KD, and um, just them having KD is just like it's overkill. So I mean, it speaks volumes about both of them. Yeah, it absolutely does. And they get the Toronto Raptors, who for a while I picked the Bucks to win this series, and they looked like they were going to yep. go up there when they were up two nothing in the first two games, and then. Toronto just flips the script, wins four straight. How did they turn the series around completely and just wipe the Bucks off the mat? 
Man, I mean, it's just so insane where, where you just like sit there and say, yeah, ask me, um, was I shocked that the Raptors won? I, I'm not shocked that they won, but shocked that they won four straight? Hell yeah. I mean, four straight is really difficult to do, no matter who you're playing in the NBA playoffs. It doesn't really happen that often. I mean, I know we saw Golden State, but they're a completely different animal. A lot of people thought that when you, when you watch like teams like this, like the Raptors and Bucks, who, who really were clearly the two best teams in the East throughout the whole season. They have two of the best players in the conference. I think it's easily Kawhi and, and Giannis, um, the head and shoulders above everyone else. I, I just think that Mike Budenholzer didn't do a great job of it. I thought Chris Middleton didn't play that well. Fred Van Fleet, man, I mean, he was struggling for a good part of the playoffs, and then he just went off. I, I mean, the guy could not miss a three for his life. I don't even think Kawhi played his best basketball throughout the whole series. I think there's a better version of him. And I think Kyle Lowry finally arrived. You know, this is the Kyle Lowry that we all expect and we all see during the regular season, you know. Like, the guy finally arrived here. It looks like he's exercised some of his demons that he's had in the playoffs. So they're going to need him uh, come this series because if they want any chance of winning. Yeah, they have a taller ahead of them, but they may catch a little of a break because Kevin Durant's calf injuries has been lingering. He's not going to play game one, might not play game two up in Toronto. How big a factor do you think Durant injury is going to be for this series? I mean, it, it really all depends on how the Raptors take advantage of stuff. I think they have no shot in this series if Golden State takes both games. I just think there's absolutely no chance. I think Toronto absolutely has to win both games. They put themselves in a very difficult position anyways if, if Golden State gets one of the games. I think game one is an absolute must-win for the Raptors. I think they need to set the tone. I think home court advantage does matter a little bit. I think Oracle, it's the last year over there. We know the types of fans that they have compared to where they will be moving. I think that matters. This is the first time ever that the Raptors have been in the finals. I mean, they just have so much going for them. I, I, they need everybody to step up. Everybody needs to play well, all the way from Kawhi Leonard, all the way down to, you know, a Norman Powell on the roster. Everybody needs to bring that A game for them to win, KD or not, because the Warriors are that good. Yeah, and you mentioned that the home court is interesting in this series because every previous finals, I feel like the Warriors have had home court. This year, they actually are going to Toronto for games one and two. And how big a deal do you think it is for the Raptors to have the home court? I, I think it's a big deal in the sense that they're able to set the tone they, they might be able to relax a little bit more if they win the first two at home. Because then if they can possibly steal a game at Oracle Arena, obviously they're in fantastic shape. I, I, I think it, it, it'll just be easier the, uh, for them to do that. And, and you know what? They got Kawhi Leonard. I think they can breathe a little bit easier knowing how good this guy is. The, the guy always, no matter what, he really elevates his game in the playoffs. Like Sort of like no athlete I've really seen in recent times you know like there's a lot of great players we've seen over the years in multiple sports where they play great in the regular season and they also play great in the postseason but he plays really well in the regular season but there's just this whole new animal that comes out in the postseason especially in the finals you remember a couple years ago last time he was on the the conference finals i believe it was the first year with kevin durant they were giving him a run for that money in that game before zaza patrulia banged into him and uh he missed the rest of that series we know the, all the issues he gave LeBron James when he was just in his early 20s. I mean, this is a guy 
that is able to just take over a series. And that's what the NBA playoffs is about. It's about who has the best player. And when he's at his best, without Kevin Durant here, I think Kawhi is the best player in this series. So if he plays to that level where he plays above his averages and he plays to that level that he showed in the past with the Spurs and and shown in this postseason, I think they got a shot here. I don't think it's absolutely ridiculous to say they can pull this off without Kevin Durant. Yeah, I think Kawhi obviously is the key to the series for them, but like he can't beat Golden nope. State by himself. So, how nope. who, who you think is the most important like sidekick that needs to step on their game in order to help Kawhi beat the uh, Warriors? I mean, I think it's so obvious that I, I think we put on this. Uh, Pascal Siakam's had a really rough kind of past couple of series. I mean, he's he's really broke out this year. Um, if you follow the league closely. He's in line to go win the Most Improved Player of the Year award, and I think rightfully so. He's he's very well deserving of that. But this is his first true test um, in the whole NBA postseason. I think I like this matchup for him, um, depending on who they put Draymond Green on. So if Draymond Green is guarding Kawhi Leonard. I think it bodes well, very well for him. Um, I think he'll be seeing a little bit more of Andre Iguodala, but I think he can handle his own against Iguodala. And you know what? Kyle Lowry has to step up, man. I mean, he's been very inconsistent in the postseason. He he hasn't been as good as you would have liked for a guy who's a perennial all-star. But if Kyle Lowry plays up to the level that we know he's able to, then then they might have a shot. But, but like you said, Kawhi needs help from everybody. Kawhi needs to have his A game maybe even better than what he usually does. He needs everybody else to step up if they want a chance here. Because... You know, DeMarcus Cousin potentially comes back in this series as well. And if he comes back, you know, that could create some matchup problems um, as well. You know, I, I mean, if Serge Ibaka and Marcus all aren't going to have it as easy as they would have liked. But, I mean, again, I, the Raptors, if they're able to get these first two games at home and they're playing well, I, I think they really have a shot here. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it's, you know, Warriors and four, Warriors and five. I, I just don't see that. Yeah, I think the guys you've just brought up, uh, Serge Ibaka and Marcus, all they're the big key for the rappers in this series. I feel like the key for everything with them is just that they have to sort of slow this pace down, get the ball in the paint, sort of play counter what Golden State likes to do and not run up and down the floor with them because they will lose that game easily if they're trying to run up and down with the Warriors. Any Anybody who tries to run up and down with Golden State loses. There's not a team that does that. Um, for example, Ty Lue's whole philosophy and idea that passed two years to try and beat Golden State was to have an up-tempo game. You cannot do that with the kind of roster that the Cavaliers had. You know, they were a very old team. I don't know what he was thinking, but that, I mean, that's besides the point. See, the Raptors here, I think he hit the nail on the head. Half-court offense, they're one of the best in the NBA. I, that's why they were such a tough matchup for the Bucks because the Bucks they like playing at a fast pace. Uh, Giannis in the half-court is not something that he likes. It made him very uncomfortable, and it showed that's why they won four straight there. But if they're able to slow the tempo down, um, if Gasol and Ibaka can take advantage of the size that they have, I think it bodes well for them. Yeah, so now we have some stuff laid out here. What's your prediction? Who do you think is going to win the finals? I think the Warriors are still going to win this. Um, I think they get it done in six. I, I, I have a hard time believing they don't come into uh, – Toronto and don't take one of those games. I, I think this goes to seven if the Raptors take the first two, but I really have a hard time believing that the that the Raptors are going to win every single home game that they have, and that's with or without Kevin Durant. I mean, 
without, without Kevin Durant, I, I, I think people really are forgetting how good Steph Curry is. They like to point a lot to the fact that he doesn't have a finals MVP, all this and that. But the fact of the matter is the guy still puts up fantastic numbers. They've been there. They have winning championship pedigree, and that's something you cannot put past them. But I think Toronto is going to give them a hell of a series. I think this is going to be the best series in the NBA Finals since the Cavs came back from 3-1 for sure. All right, there you have it. Martillo likes the Warriors in six to win the NBA Finals. Martillo, thanks for coming by. Before I let you go, you all up there, everybody, on the Mariano Rivera documentary you've been working on for the past several months. Any Anything you want to tease? Um, just that the interviews will be coming within the next uh, month, next couple of weeks. So those will be posted to Twitter. I'm going to have those up there by a couple of the people just to tease some more of it. I'm also going to try and release one or two more clips um, from the interview with Mariano himself. And then hopefully before his Hall of Fame speech, I'm able to get this out there for everyone to view. Um, it's obviously going to be awesome. Very interview heavy, I will say that. Um, so look out for that. Um, it should be very exciting when it does come out. And when people want to follow you on Twitter or get those clips, where do they go? They just go and follow my handle. Uh, you'll see a tag on Mike's Twitter, but at Martino Puccio. Um, you can go on there. There's a lot of soccer tweets, forgive me, but um, there's obviously all a uh, bunch of sports on there. As you know, um, my love hate relationship with the New York Mets is well documented on there as well. So I'll talk to you then, I guess, you know. Yeah, that's, after this comes out, we'll catch back up and discuss more about this. After I get a chance to see it, we can break it down, some of the fun st- behind-the-scenes making of it. Oh, yeah, 100%. It, it really is going to be an exciting thing for that to come out. All right, cool. That was Martino Puccio on the NBA and his Mario Rivera documentary. Up next, the Met Fan Forum. We're going to be joined by Will Schneiderhand and Jack Clark to break down the Mets coming up right after this. 1-2 coming. And he drives one deep left center field. That goes Robles. It's out of here! Carlos Gomez with a three-run homer! He's going to beat Ramos around the bases. The prodigal son returns a three-run bomb for Carlos Gomez, and the Mets lead it 6-4. to four. All right, we are back on the Met Fan Forum portion of the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call you just heard, courtesy SNY's Gary Cohen and Todd Zeal. Carlos Gomez is go-ahead homer to help the Mets beat the Washington Nationals last Thursday. Depending on how the season ends up, it will either be the turning point or a blip on the radar. But I have two great Met fans here with me to talk about it. First, on the line today, the Met path of the baseball beat, Will Schneiderham. Will, welcome. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Doing very good. And in the studio with me, the very, I think, well, the very first, first guest of this podcast, back with us after a long break, Jack Clark. Jack, welcome. How are you? Great, Mike. How have you been? Doing very good. And obviously, we have a lot of New York Mets to dive into, so let's get into it. Last week, I talked about that with John Cobbinger, and it looked like they were about to just be buried for the year. They go 6-1 and one last week, go out to L.A. last night, lose to the Dodgers and that ridiculous game where they got thrown out three times by Cody Bellinger on the bases. So we get to Memorial Day, which is usually the check-in point for these baseball teams. So, Jack, where do you think the Mets are at Memorial Day? I think, like you said, they were on the verge of being buried. I don't think it's possible to be buried this early in the season. Getting swept by the Marlins was bad. That was tough. It was a really good bounce back for them to, like you say, sweep the Nats at home. And obviously last night, 
against the Dodgers. This is going to be a tough, tough four-game series in the midst of this 20-game stretch with no days off. I thought they played – I thought DeGrom gave it his all yesterday and the bullpen fell through. But check-in point-wise, I think it's pretty much what we expected. Yeah, well, what do you think? Obviously, we have the ups and downs, but I just feel like after this Dodgers season – or season, sorry, Dodgers series, this might just be something, you know, much ado about nothing. You know, oh, is their season down the drain? Oh, they come back and shoot the Nationals. Are they back? Are they here? Uh, I mean, I know the team's a little bit injured, but I tell you, if you get <laughs> I mean, the Dodgers just looked head and shoulders over uh, like above us last night, right? And so, like, I feel like if we look like that against a team like like that, at the end of the day, like, yeah, we could be five hundred, but this might just be another one of those middling seasons. Yeah, they usually don't have these middling seasons either. Usually, they're either really good and they get to the playoffs and make deep runs. They're really bad and they win seventy games. So I feel like there's exactly, the fact they might yeah. be in the middle is a little weird. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's where I think. Like last night, I'm just watching, and I even I remember texting you. I'm like, this this Dodgers team is really good, and I guess that I know we're injured, but like, ah, uh, you know what I mean? Like, is it really worth the up and down emotionally as a fan to get this invested when they sweep the Nationals? <laughs> well, it's always fun sweeping the Nationals too, right, Jack? It is absolutely. It's I mean, they they're I mean. We should be thanking our lucky stars. We're not in the place that they're in because yeah, yeah. every single every single year them it's. Oh, I think that everyone predicting them to finish above us and above the Phillies and the Braves. It might be the Nationals' year, and then it's just they're they are already buried. It feels like. Yeah, I think in the preseason, oh, yeah. all three of us on the baseball beat, me, uh, Will, and Anthony Starbucks, we all picked the Nationals to get to the World Series this year. So that shows yeah. how much we know. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> no, they are they are dead and buried. But the Mets are still alive, thanks to a lot of the depth guys that Brody Van Wagen brought in. I mean, last week, everybody was stepping up. Danny Hatcheria. Carlos Gomez, Aaron Altair, and my favorite, Rajai Davis, coming from the Uber, <laughs> hitting the three-run homer to help beat the Nationals, I think on Wednesday night. I, you guys hear Rajai Davis's uh, explanation of how he got to City Field. Yeah, the three-hour oh, yeah. Uber? Yeah. He got there in the third <laughs> inning. Yeah, I got, I got the clip from uh, Rajai seeking postgame from SNY. Let's hear that. About five? About five o'clock? I think you guys were starting at a sim. Got here around third inning. <laughs> you took an Uber, Uber. all the way? Yeah, we Ubered it. Mm-hmm. Thanks Did to you get to know your driver? Or? Oh, we got to know each other. How much that cost? Yeah, how much? Um, not sure, but uh, I'm not gonna put that bill. Okay. <laughs> what was his name? Um, Jason. Me and Jason, we got to know each other. <laughs> Stuff like that's so fun, and I love Rajai Davis. I felt so bad he got DFA to make room for Conforto coming off the DL, but man, Jack. That was so much fun watching him come basically from the Uber two hours from Pennsylvania coming and hit the game-winning homer. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, he he's had those moments before, too, in his career. He's just kind of now at this point uh, a journeyman, and he spent a little bit of time, like you said, DFA'd already. Um, I think they'd want to try and keep him around if some other team doesn't try and grab him just because he can play the outfield. and He can still play the outfield, and you see what he did for us. You've seen what he's done in the past. He is a clutch hitter obviously towards the end of his career but he's someone that I'm sure is a good locker room guy and someone that fits in and can give you good playing time when you need that yeah well we've also discussed this before off air we talked about how the Mets never used to have these kind of depth guys where like in the past when guys get hurt it's sign Jose Bautista off the street and then 20 minutes later he's in the starting lineup so now they actually prepared themselves and like the Yankees to a lesser degree it's only been a week but the depth guys are helping them out 
Yeah, and oh, you, no, it, yeah, it's been great to see. Honestly, <laughs> refreshing. <laughs> the one, the one guy I'm waiting for now is Matt Kemp. They signed him to a minor league contract. I'm waiting yeah, for him yeah. to get his uh, cup of coffee with the Mets before he. He'll probably be here sooner rather than later. Yeah, he'll mm-hmm. get his cup of coffee, and then I don't know if he'll end up like Rajay Davis or stick around a little bit longer. But I hope that he can fill in where necessary and provide a spark for the team like Carlos Gomez has. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by Cap. Honestly, I, I don't know how much he can play the field, but you know, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time believing that that bat isn't going to play anymore. But hey, I, it's much better having that than you know. Years ago, who was the opening day second baseman? Like Brad Emis or something? We had Josh Satin. Like oh, Jesus God. Guy, Don't go know? down that rabbit hole, please. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dark, uh, random Mets that we've had over the years, including guys who just washed up. But now they have a lot of youth. They have a lot of energy. And the big guy, Pete Alonzo, man, what an impact he's had on this team. Just incredible because, Jack, I mean, they're talking in the year. Remember, they weren't. Think about, think about maybe not bringing him up opening day for service considerations. Imagine where they'd be without him. Yeah, especially, I mean, in the beginning of the season, he was lighting it up, and it was so under the radar, I felt like, because of – and it, I, I, it still feels like it's under the radar for looking all around from the MLB just because of the – especially in the National League, seeing the performance that Yelich and Bellinger, what they're doing this season. I mean, you take a look at the home run leaders. Alonzo's right there behind them as a rookie. Um, and I know he's kind of been in a little bit of a slump lately, but the power hasn't gone away. They said he was eight for whatever, and like six of those eight hits were home runs. So he's still making an impact when he hits the ball. Yeah, well, no, I- yeah, you, you, you actually, Jack, you just hit what I was going to say. Like even, like he's, I the other day, I don't know what he's hitting now, but the other day I thought, I think he was hovering around like under two hundred for the past fifteen games or something. But you wouldn't even know that. Like you know what I mean? It's a sneaky slump where like he's not hitting. He's kind of expanding the strike zone right now, but he's still like, every, you know, he's still up there when you need him most hitting big home runs and that you know i remember early in the year mike texted me he's like hey you think uh you think this is like our judge and you know you know you know some people would balk at that and think it's crazy but he has he's had that impact he's come in and he has literally carried this team for stretches and then he's had you know back-breaking game-saving home runs and he hasn't been that bad at first i mean i've he he has been astonishing so far for a rookie yeah and another fun thing about the mets here one that we i like to go back to all the time is that they have a really bad ability to judge their own players. All we heard come out was Alonzo can't play defense. We heard Jeff McNeil's a bad fielder. Yeah. And they come up here, they're the two best players on the team. And you're wondering, like, <laughs> like what do we have to do to just evaluate our own guys correctly? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it speaks volumes to, to our player development, I feel like. I mean, when Ahmed Rosario came up, uh, or was it last year when like they essentially said like he couldn't, he didn't really know how to play baseball fully <laughs> and, like, like Dom Smith did it, never lay down a bunt, you know. It, it really kills me, and I think I think that's why Alonzo, it's such a testament to, like, Alonzo's talent, because I feel like if you can make it through the Mets farm system and come up and be really good right away, you know, like Conforto, like, that, that just says how good you are. Yeah, it was, I, I think it was more along the lines of they were battling with that idea of the service time, so they were trying to find any possible excuse yeah, to keep yeah. Alonzo down so they could have him for that extra year, but I think they just realized that there was no keeping him down the the defense wasn't actually it couldn't have actually been an issue it was just an excuse to try and keep him down and and he obviously played up to the potential of what they expected for a major league player and he's doing it right now which is awesome it's awesome to watch yeah oh yeah you would have thought the guy couldn't even stand at first base the way that they described him defensively (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a great year. Let's go around the horn here. Everybody, Jack, I'll go to you first. Give me who you think has had the best year for the Mets so far. Let's take Alonzo off the table here. I really think it's got to be McNeil. I know it's tough now with the the injury, and I'm really hoping that this doesn't affect him for too long. But, I mean, the guy is just so consistent, and it, it – we're not there, but it just seems like no matter what they ask of him, that he'll do it. They want him to play second, he'll play second. They want him to play left, they want him to play third. Wherever they need him to play, he'll play. He hits no matter where he's playing in the field. He He's another one that we were talking about Alonzo. It seems like even like through this slump, Alonzo's been getting those hits where they're in the big moments of the game. He's not hitting a home run down 9-5 with two outs in the ninth. McNeil is like, he just seems to be that guy that, He's always uh, setting the table, whether he's leading off, he's starting at two outs. He's he just – everything he does and everything everything he does for this team is, like, incredibly unselfish to, to watch, like I'm saying, with the, the playing left, the playing third, the playing second, hitting wherever in the order. I, I think that he has been one of the best players for us this season so far. Yeah, I like him as well. I think he's had a huge year. Joe Beningo is calling him Tony Gwynn on WFAN. He gets two hits a day, and <laughs> I just think it's funny. So – Will, any other guys you want to add to the overachieving Mets uh, column? Uh, yeah, uh, Todd Frazier. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think uh, I think McNeil definitely. I just think he's like a, you know, he's a damn good player. He does it all. He'll bunt. He'll hit one into the gap. Like Jack said, plays everywhere. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think Conforto has been key. Even though he's been slumping, you kind of see, we saw it, you know, even though they won without him, he's such a big piece of that lineup, such a big piece to what they're trying to do. And, um I've liked what he's been doing so far. I hope he starts tapping into that power a little bit more, start pulling the ball, and, you know, he could take – for years, you know, it's kind of been like, when's he going to be that prototypical 303-hole hitter? And I think this might be that year. Yeah, that'd be good. So let's – Honorable mention, J.D. Davis. I, I think what I he – I was going to say that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. W- what he's done for the team, I love him. I absolutely love him. I mean, you look at – like, I think that was one of Brody's best offseason moves other than just – I think it was the best offseason movies made. Right. Yeah. I think the best has to be just going against the grain there and bring up Alonzo. I, I think that obviously that is a that's the move that had to be made. But the JD Davis move, going out, getting him, I mean, he was tearing it up in AAA in the Astros system and they just didn't have a spot for him in that infield. Yep. Uh, and even I, I hope that at this once we start getting healthier that if Todd Frazier isn't picking it up, uh, it seems like he's not going to be. If he's not, then I'm just hoping that uh, J.D. Davis plays himself into that third base role. I hope that he keeps hitting. And don't yeah, forget- I mean, hey, when you take Kershaw deep, you know, you're doing something right. <laughs> and don't forget, Jay Lowry's in the universe somewhere, so maybe he'll show up one day. But for now, let's go with J.D.'s third base. <laughs> let's go the other direction. Let's start off. Let's look at who's been the biggest disappointment for the Mets. So oh. I'm, I'm going to throw one out there right away, the very obvious one. Jerry's Familia has been a complete disaster since he came back to the Mets. I mean, they signed him to be the setup guy. They gave him three years, $30 million. He has an ERA of big about six right now. And, like, it's just been such a mess. And, like, they need to pen in the back of that bullpen because Edwin Diaz can't pitch every single day. So, like, the fact he's been such a bust has been a complete train wreck for the Mets. We've had so much experience with Familia. And, like, we were talking about highs and lows. We've experienced the highs of Familia. And we've also experienced lows. I think that at this point right now, this is one of the lowest points now in his career. I, I do have the faith in him to, I mean, look at what he did last year with the A's in that eighth inning setup role. That's why I was kind of excited to get him back, even though I thought that we were paying too much money for him. But 
he was doing such a good job in that eighth, seventh, eighth inning role with the A's, and you know he has the stuff. I think we what I I think it was against the Tigers he had come in, and it seemed like he was getting that dip on that sinker now again if he gets that back that's oh, the thing yeah, that makes yeah. him so successful he had a very good inning i believe it was against the tigers yeah the sinker it was, was working yeah, the other day yes when, when the sinker is on for him that's the key he obviously he obviously works off of that and he gets the swing misses and if you're going to make contact with that sinker diving down so hard towards the shins that's that's what makes him that's when he's at his best so i'm hoping that maybe he found whether it's the release point or it was just something with the confidence of the pitch I'm hoping that he's found that now because, obviously, with what we've seen from some of the starting pitchers, I mean, you even look at DeGrom yesterday going to five innings. He battled through to go five innings, and we really needed to rely on the bullpen yesterday and against a good offense like uh, the Dodgers. It didn't work out for us, but if we can start getting our bullpen pieces to pitch to their potential, that's obviously going to help us in the long run. Well, any other additions you want to make to the uh, disappointment pile? Yeah, Brandon Nimmo. I mean, I, I'm not like I. <laughs> I feel bad because I know he's, obviously it's that bulging disc or whatever he has. I mean, I can't even imagine playing or like moving with that. But I mean, just from the standpoint of this was a guy who was supposed to get on base, supposed to table set, supposed to hit for some pop, and I mean, he has been unbearably bad. And I get it. Like I just said, it's probably a lot of the injury, but. It, you're kind of at a loss for words with him because you're like, you know, he's he's literally not really getting on base and he's striking out an alarming rate. So I mean, I think I think he's definitely had to be one of them. I know obviously there's a few other guys you said Familia, Syndergaard too, but yeah, I, I, as from a positional player standpoint, I think it's got to be um, got to be Brandon Nimmo. Yeah, Nimmo has definitely slipped under the radar in terms of guys who have not performed very well because all the heat's on Robbie Cano because Cano is not hitting and Cano is making all the money, but. They, this is a guy they refused to trade for JT Realmuto and Brandon Nimmo, and now like he's not yeah, hitting. Yeah. That's a problem. He's like, yeah, yeah, the strikeouts are crazy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that, I, it's insane. That's what really highlights it for me is the strikeouts. We're looking at a guy who I didn't think it was a fluke of a season to have when he was at, he was at that four four hundred OBP mark for a little while, and it's like, yeah, that you don't want to think that was a fluke because he was just performing so well last season, and now all of a sudden. He's he's still walking. I think he was he was getting the walks, but the strikeouts, like you said, were just at an alarming rate. And obviously, at least put the ball in play, make things happen, see see one go through, get on base with an error. I'm hoping that a lot of it is uh, a credit to the injury, that the injury was the reason that he's yeah. been performing like this, and now he just needs to shut it down for a little bit and get healthy, and he can come back and return to form. But, sure, yeah, yeah, like you said, it, it, he has been, and I think you said it has been a little bit under the radar, his disappointment, but it's really been, like, season long. There hasn't been too yeah. too many good stretches for him. Yeah, and, and, like, the reason he got that job last year, he took that starting off outfield job, is because he had the power, you know? Like, it was like we always knew he was going to walk, but they never knew if he was going to hit enough for, uh, for enough power, and he showed that last year. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's a big disappointment because, like Philip said, man, they, they didn't want to trade this guy, right? So now you're saying we value you as, like, a player for the future. You're a big piece of this order. And, I mean, if, you know, if he, if he doesn't get that power back and that consistency, they're, they're in a lot of trouble with that, that spot. Yeah, they are in a lot of trouble there. The other one, Noah Syndergaard, on real quickly. Yeah. The fact yeah. that he's just been so inconsistent where he either looks, like, ridiculous or he's throwing batting practice. And, like, for a guy who's supposed to be your two-starter behind Jacob DeGrom, that's not good enough. No, no, God, he's he has looked like batting practice, and at times it just looks like 
You know what I mean? Like, there's been two games this year. I think that one early in Philadelphia, and then there was the one the other day where, like, he wasn't pitching well, but the Mets did get him to get the lead back multiple times, and then he gave the lead back again. And it's just, you know, that, that's tough. You can't be doing that. That That's the most frustrating thing to watch, just building off, building off of that, is when it seems to happen to the Mets so often where – you go out and you give a pitcher a lead, and then immediately the uh, it's like yeah, immediately yeah. they give that lead away. Recently, too, a lot. Uh, yeah, that whole Tiger series was like that way, where they get the lead, get it right back, get the lead, get it right back. It was just, just unfortunately, it's a mark of a bad team, which is like you know, like all three phases never click at the same time. It's like one thing works, the others don't. Oh no, yeah, yeah, that that Tiger series was far too trying, and yeah, that was a big staple of it. I mean, you got to go out there, you got to get a lead, you got to put teams to bed, and they haven't done that. All right, let's take a look at last week for a minute, too. Last week, they go 6-1. and one. They beat up on the bad na- – they sweep the very, very bad Nationals. They fight tooth and nail to get by the Tigers 2 out of 3 to get back to 500. Obviously, they lose last night. Do we think last week was fool's gold, or is this a sign that they are turning it around? Jack, I'll go to you first. <laughs> fool's gold, no. I think no matter what, it's always a good thing to beat the bad teams, which is exactly what we did not do against the Marlins. I mean, we could be talking about 9-1 and one in their last 10 games before last night's loss if we don't get swept by the Marlins. Even if we don't get swept, take a game. But it was like we were talking about when we were trying to set this up. It was a good thing for them to bounce back and get that sweep of the Nationals. I think, obviously, that is a confidence booster. And to look at that series and see the production that we got, like we talked about from Echeverria. Well, Echeverria was the Tigers. But you see Gomez and Rajay Davis, all these depth guys contributing. That was something that it was a confidence booster. And then going into that Tigers series to drop the first game, all of a sudden, it, as a fan, it seemed like, Uh-oh. oh, boy, here we go again. And then for them to fight tooth and nail, like you said, to take two out of three, take those final two, was a good job. I'm interested to see what goes on in this West Coast trip more, more importantly against the Dodgers. I'm hoping that this series is a split. I don't think – we can expect to take three out of four against the Dodgers in L.A., like I said, in the midst of this 20-game stretch without a day off, but we can hope for two. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'll, go, I'll say, I said to Will off air, go four and three out west. That was my goal heading out there, and I think it is a mix. It's like, yes, they beat up on the bad teams. That's what you're supposed to do, but like – at the same time, you have to you have to step up your game because what they did against Detroit is not going to work against these better teams. They can't just expect to put themselves in holes and dig themselves out of them every single night. Yeah, like like uh, Jack said, you got to sweep the Nationals, and that's big. You got to beat up on the bad teams. You take that series against the Tigers, but yeah, it's just I uh, I'm not gonna I, I'm happy they're back at 500. You know they can they did this with you know Gar- Carlos Gomez and Danny Echeverria as we've documented, but um. Yeah, I just I don't know. I really don't know. I think at this point you just go, you go and see. Um, they've done some nice things, but you know, if, in this West Coast trip, if like the staff comes, or, yeah, say they go through, like you said, three and four, it's fine. But like, if the staff comes around and can kind of show us something, then I'll be a little more optimistic. But like, nothing is going to change really until you know what I mean. You can drop four, win five, drop two, win three, so on and so forth. But you know, until that pitching comes around, I think it's going to be really tough. Okay, so last but not least, we know we talked about this a little bit. The schedule is going to get very, very hard for the Mets the next like month or so because they only have six games against losing teams right now before the All-Star break. It's the Giants and the Rockies in the next homestand. But then they have the Dodgers, Arizona, Phillies twice, Yankees twice, Braves twice, Cubs, Cardinals all in there. So, like, 
Where do you think they have to be by the All-Star break to have a realistic shot to contend for the playoffs? Will, I'll start with you. Like, What kind of record would you want them to have? Oh, I, um, you know, obviously, honestly, I'll be completely honest. If you're at 500 or like, you know, at, at 500, I think you have a good chance. Um, I think obviously I'd like them to be like, you know, a little bit, I'm not saying 20 games over, not even 10 games over, maybe five games over. But if you're around that 500, you're healthy. Some guys have turned a corner. I mean, I don't think this wild card's going to get out of hand. I really don't think the Phillies are going to like go on some massive, you know, win streak. I think they're extraordinarily flawed too. Um, but if you're, I think it's more like, what do we see, right? Like record-wise, like right now they're one game under, but like this team is really like, oof, you know, you just got to get what you can get and get until you get healthy until guys turn a corner. But if they're like, a, if they're like at 500, and you know guys are hitting, the pitchers are where they should be. You know, even if some guys are in a little bit of a slump, it's fine. But just get to 500, get a little bit above it, get guys righted, and just keep riding the ship. Um, because I really do. I, I don't think. I'm not, like, sold on really – it's like you have your top-tier National League teams, like the Dodgers. I, I guess you would say the, definitely the Cubs and the Brewers. But then everybody else is honestly a crapshoot. I mean, I don't think it's going to take much to win a wild card. Um, I don't even think it's going to take much to win this division unless the Braves go out and blow somebody out of the water and do something crazy. But that's just my opinion. An all-star break, get a five hundred, get to 500 and just get guys righted. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it, too, is dependent on what we're talking about the Phillies and Braves are doing at that point. Yeah. if Like you said, so long as they don't go on some crazy stretch like we've seen a couple teams, like we've seen the Cubs go on at this point. Yeah, yeah. As long as they're not going on a crazy stretch like that and they're entering the break with uh, a double-digit lead on the division, I think you'll be in a good spot. I Obviously, you want to be above 500. Let's say like five yeah, games yeah, above yeah. 500. I mean, if we're going into the All-Star break under 500 and there's a, a double-digit deficit to make up in the win column, it, then you're looking wild card for sure. I mean, it's yeah, not the no season's doubt, not yeah. the season's not over at that point, but I, I think you want to just say, shoot for over 500. Let's try and be 500 or better. Five games over 500, 10 games over 500. Is that just – I mean, if yeah. we were 10 games over 500, that would be incredible. I think at that point we'd be pushing – top of the top of the division yeah I, I think just what you want to see from the team is more consistency you want to see the points the the guy you want to see guys get healthy you want to see the our weak points show a little show some prowess now get stronger um let's see the the starters like you said turn the corner start putting together some good starts the bullpen builds off of that and finishes out games for us we continue to get offense from the guys who are filling in until the guys that are injured get healthy uh, you just want to see this team continue to when they have those heartbreaking losses like we've seen and we're expecting to see again that it's not going to sink the ship that we're going to it'll be righted and then in the next game maybe we get that walk-off win that that energy energy blast that we need yeah my yeah. my thing is this they cannot be just at 500 they have to be better than 500 i think at least by three games because the way I look at it is that, yes, the schedule is tough, but they have four series in there with the Braves and the Phillies. So if they're not doing well in those, that division's over because they're going to be not going to have enough games left to make up the ground. So this is just one where they have to find a way to win. I mean, Yankees doing a cross down. They haven't had John Carl Sander, Aaron Judge pretty much the entire year, and they're still finding ways to win games. The Mets, you know, like they just have these, they have to find a way. That's as simple as that because they've blown too many games against bad teams at this point. They didn't perform well enough. It just, 
the schedule is what it is. You have to just take care of business. There's nothing you can really do beyond that. That's why no, I think exactly. it, yeah, it, it seems dependent on, like you said, there are definitely games in this stretch before the All-Star break that we need to win, and those are the division games. You know, I think right now you look at the Dodgers series, you're just hoping for two out, you're hoping for two out of four. When you go play the Yankees, that's a two-game series. You want to take one out of two. But, yeah, those division games are going to be the biggest ones and like I said, it, the where we're at on the All Star break, at the All Star break, it seems really dependent on what the other teams are looking like. So if we can take those games, take some games from our division rivals, that'll be a good, good point. We'll be at a good point going into the All Star break. All right, well, that's a good start for the fan forum today. We'll come back in a little, a couple of weeks, hopefully, some point soon. Find out how the Mets are doing as we get close to the All Star break. I want to thank Jack and Will for coming on. I'll give you guys a chance to plug your souls. Me is Jack. You can go first. Thank you, Mike, for having me on. Great to be back on social media wise. Follow me on Twitter at Jack Clark 620. All right. And Will, how about you? How about how we follow you on social media? Uh, yeah. So on Twitter, it's at uh, Will S-T-H-N-E-I-D-E-R-H-1. And uh, yep, that's how you get me on Twitter. All right. Thanks again, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, that was the Mets Fan Forum. Up next, this week's seventh inning stretch, we're going to take a look at some of the fun moments from the first 49 episodes of this podcast with Joe D'Aloisio right after this. All right, we are back on the seventh inning stretch of episode number 50 of the Just End the Suffering podcast. And I know a lot of podcasts do the cliche thing of playing some of their highlight moments and some of their best moments and whatnot. So you know what? Why not? Let's do it. I brought in a good friend of mine to help go back through the archives, find some of the great moments from this podcast to date. And since there's no football, I wanted to have Joe D'Alessio on, so this is the best way to do it. Joe, welcome back. How are you? Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. And... One of the first guests of this podcast way back in the day, back in episode five. I think remember what we talked about the first time you came on? Um, Mike, it's been so many episodes. I've listened to so many that I forgot. I would assume it had to do something football related. Am I wrong? It actually was not football related. Damn it. It was World Cup soccer. Wow. It was that long ago. That long ago. And we talked a little baseball too, because I remember you you were not happy to talk about the Seattle Mariners on that episode. Well, I do recall that. <laughs> I mean, for to peel back the layers a little bit, I will be the first one to admit that I am not a baseball guy. Yeah. So when Mike hit me with a Seattle Mariners question, I had no idea where to go with it. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yes, that's kind of running jokes. Never make up the Seattle Mariners again. So. Exactly. Yeah. I, we don't talk Seattle Mariners baseball when I'm on the podcast. So this one's more fun because there's no NFL stuff going on right now. You are on the Mount Rushmore. So I want to get you in for number 50. So we're going to look at some of the best moments from this podcast of the first 49 episodes. We'll start with one from our let. One of our last appearances on the podcast did not make the cut, but I just thought this was hilarious. This is us talking about Sean McVay back in the NFL Draft preview episode number 44. When he was a losing head coach at Texas Tech, just because he's friends with Sean McVay does not mean he's qualified to be an NFL coach. He could not win in the Big 12 where all your job is just to outscore everybody. I mean, that's the standard now. If you know McVay, if you've spoken to McVay, if you've touched McVay, you now have a good shot of becoming a head coach in the NFL. So we need to go, we need to go shake McVay's hands that so we can become head coaches. I think there's hope. Yeah. That's a good chance. I That's a brilliant idea from you actually yeah let's go after this podcast we'll go fly out to LA go find Sean McVay and go hang out with him for 24 he hours maybe a little busy but yeah. 
I'm willing to take that chance. We still haven't done this yet. We haven't. I was going to say, uh, we never made it out to L.A. No, we couldn't We couldn't get the uh, travel schedule coordinated, but that's something we can do this summer after maybe a couple of weeks out. Maybe we'll plan this out. We'll go find Sean McVay in L.A. We could try that out. I'll yeah. tell you what, though. If any of the Sean McVay disciples mm-hmm. end up panning out, the Sean McVay hype will only continue. Yeah. So if, if Matt LaFleur, if Kingsbury, if they end up being decent head coaches— um, it's all going to go back to Sean McVay. So um, part of me wants to see them, I don't want to say fail, because I don't like <laughs> to see anybody fail, especially when one of the head coaches is the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. But at the same time, it'll be a little bit more of a uh, smack to, smack uh, smack back to reality Yeah. Um, that you know Sean McVay isn't the be-all. And all of the league. Correct. Yeah, so definitely for sure. Sean McVay's going to be fun. Let's stick with a little football talk here, considering you're a football guy. Obviously, we're going to the New York Giants for a minute. I, as you know, you were on the podcast, and we do show me the money during football season. We do NFL picks. I always ask the guests the first time they're on, how'd you become a fan of your favorite team? So the first Giant fan I had on was my friend Justin Diaz. And I asked him a simple question, how'd you become a Giant fan? And it started a four-minute rant about the Giants. I didn't, I'm not playing all four minutes, but I'm playing the beginning of that next. This is from episode 13 of the podcast. Oh, man. Where do I start? I honestly, it's disaster the, the, the we're turning into the jets again no offense but it's hey, you've it's got two super bowls i haven't gotten any <laughs> yeah that, that's very true but uh i feel like those super bowl have, have been, contribute to what we're seeing now that the giants fans and the org- i feel like the the organization the fans adopt this mindset that the giants are this amazing organization that can do no wrong we're, we're due we're, we're owed success and, and it's expected I, I like the mindset of expecting success but at the end of the day you have to evaluate your roster and, and see where it stands and make decisions accordingly you can't look at a roster where you've made the playoffs once in the last six years you had one fluke season where you went 11 and five two years ago maybe giant fans don't want to hear that that was more, every game every win was a as a one or two point win where you scratched it out. The offense did nothing, and Beckham took a five-yard slant, 80 yards to the house. That's not sustainable success. I don't think that's sustainable success, by the way. No. <laughs> no, I think he nailed it, though. Yeah. I mean, if I was him, I'd be frustrated, too, because I have no idea where this organization is going, what they're doing, or what their plan is, because it certainly seems like they don't have a plan. And that was after two weeks where the Giants had lost two games. Yeah, I think after mm-hmm. two weeks, I mean, that's a little bit of an overreaction, kind of a panic button, but uh, he was able to foreshadow the future, that's for sure, because now looking back at it, it is an absolute disaster. And Odell Beckham is gone now. Now he's in Cleveland. Correct. Yeah. A lot has changed. No Landon Collins. Uh, a, a lot of movement over there in uh, at the Meadowlands. Yeah, the Giants are a bit of a mess. The Jets are also a mess. And now, thanks to Adam Gaze basically pulling his power play where he basically ran Mike McCagney out of town. And, you know, he denies it, but that bothers me. One person who was not a big fan of that hire, our uh, former professor here, Mark Malusis, who is the who hosts uh, Taz and the Moose on CBS Sports Radio every morning. I spoke to him back in January, shortly after Gase was hired. This is what Moose had to say about Adam Gase being the Jet coach. The issue I have with Gase is this. Is you see guys, historically speaking, that jump right back in the head coaching opportunities after a failure, and the success rate is very, very low. He's been out humble. They haven't really learned all that much. He got rewarded with a job that's probably a better job than the one that he just left. And and that's the problem I have with the hiring. I think he's a good coach. I think he's got to learn how to communicate with players. 
Um, certainly there was issues down in Miami uh, with uh, relating and communicating with those players. So he's got issues. Uh, there's no question about it now. He's got a good staff. I like the hiring of Greg Williams. I do think he's probably a, a better coach right now than what Todd Bowles was um, after, you know, before they fired him. So I was a Bowles supporter. Um, but I, I think the hiring's okay. I don't think it's a home run. Well, let me say this for Moose. This is, that was from episode 31, by the way. So, Moose, the thing that got me the most about that was the thing that he said that Adam Gase had not been humbled yet. And basically, he went from one job where he got fired, he got a better job, and now he basically just ran roughshod of the owner and the GM. So, as a Jet fan, I'm terrified. Yeah, I think he said it perfectly right there and the, right off the bat. He he got rewarded for doing a terrible job somehow. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, it shows that he had some serious behind the scene power that we weren't aware of with the Jets. I mean, look what just happened. He he took over. He yeah. completely took over. I mean, here's a guy who got ran he ran out of town in Miami. He couldn't get along with star players. Um He's fighting with the owner too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and now all of a sudden he's he's the head honcho basically. Like something something's fishy. Something behind the scenes that we don't know. Um really gave Adam Gaze that opportunity. And the Chris Johnson being gullible off the fall for this, to give a guy who's 23 and 25 as a head coach, I'm not counting his playoff loss in his record, but the fact this guy got to run the entire football operation just mind-boggling to me. I mean, I think it's just a disaster overall that you fire your GM in arguably the most important offseason. You have a huge draft. You have a ton of money to spend. You do all of that, and then you get rid of them? I don't, I'd be very, very concerned if I was a Jets fan. Oh, believe me, I am very concerned. Every Jet fan I spoke to is pretty much very concerned, except for Martino Puccio, who says, you know what, McCagney wasn't that great. <laughs> they they took over. The, Jet, the, the Giants really were trending towards the dysfunction and what the hell is Gettleman doing. The Jets took that right back. They, yeah. they took over that number one spot with what they just did. Yeah, the Jets, I feel like, They've always been sort of the uh, like bastard stepchild of the family of the football family, where it was like, oh, the Giants are the great kid, and then all of a sudden, like the Giants start misbehaving. The Jets come in there and they're like, wait a minute, I don't know what to do with myself. I can't handle this. So they go and do something fifty times worse to get themselves back in the uh, bastard position. Spot on, <laughs> spot on, and good luck getting out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to the baseball for a little bit. I know it's not your favorite topic, but I have some good baseball clips for you. So Let's hear them. One from your first appearance on the podcast back at Southern number 5. It's not the Seattle Mariners. Okay. This is about us talking about a interesting prop bet going on to the Mets season, which was spiraling out of control with the All-Star break last year. Okay, before we move on, I have an interesting prop bet for you regarding the Mets. Okay. Okay, which, which of these statistics do you think is lower at the end of the season? Jacob DeGrom's ERA or Jose Reyes' batting average? Wow, that is phenomenal. Um, In case you're curious what they are right now. Yeah, let me get those numbers right now. DeGrom's batting average is 168. I mean, ERA is 168. Jose's batting average is 181 because he got a little hot the last couple of games. I I think uh, Jose's will be lower. Yeah, you're banking on DeGrom having a couple of rough starts and actually being human down down the stretch. Yeah, and I'm also banking that he gets traded to a contender and, you know, it (laughs) happened. That he's going to struggle a little bit, but, I mean... Again, another guy, Jose Reyes. Why the hell is he even playing? Yeah, I mean, he's it's pretty much everybody kind of senses here because he's Fred Wilpon's favorite player, but that's a whole other debate. So. Oh, <laughs> enough of, I mean, it, it, it's really a shame. It's yeah. really a shame what they've done, and, and I, I feel bad for people like myself, for you, and all the other fans that 
that continue to deal with their nonsense? Well, two things I'll point out. Number one, DeGrom did finish with lower ERA because he finished with a 170 and won the Cy Young. And Jose ended up close to 200, but not quite there. And Big whoop. Big whoop. And the Met nonsense continues to this day. They still yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I feel like you could replay that clip every single year and it's still going to mean something. Again, here we are at the end of May, one game under 500 and completely just underachieving again. Yeah. Uh, it's... It's the cycle. It, it just, <laughs> I'm numb to it. I think you could agree that you're numb to it. You get excited. Everyone was excited about Robinson Cano. Everyone, yeah. everyone yeah. loved Robinson Cano, and the season couldn't have started any better for Cano with that home run. Yeah, and he threw a guy out the plate on opening day too. Maybe I mean, <laughs> you're getting everything out of Cano. Yeah. I don't think I've seen Cano do anything since. Yeah, and since come on, tip, since opening day. <laughs> since opening day, yeah. that was his. That was his peak met performance opening day i hope it turns around but yeah. who knows it's also typical mets that like as soon as cano gets criticized not hustling he, he injures himself hustling down the first baseline of course <laughs> of course i mean cano will play you know 10 seasons not miss a single game he's with the mets all right two months into the season all right into the injured list we go yeah that that trade just has this kind of like pac-man disaster potential for the mets all over they essentially got a closer big whoop yeah, and they gave up a kid in Jared Kalenic who could be a superstar in a couple of years. Of so. course, but you know, they got Robinson Cano. And his Brody, money. And his money. Brody took care of one of his boys. That's a, that's a pattern. Brody took care of one of his boys, and we got a closer. Yeah. Big whoop. Exactly. Whoop. Brody whoop. does not do doing very well right now with that. We will be um, we will be watching golf relatively soon. Yeah. They're heading towards golf season a lot sooner than I thought. Yeah, they have a rough stretch ahead. We'll see what happens there. But one of the few bright spots this year was Pete, it's been Pete Alonso, who has been a superstar for them. Wouldn't you agree? Without a doubt. He's yeah. the only reason. Pete Alonso may be the only reason I still tune into the Mets. Just to see what he can do. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously the pitching. The, first of all, the pitching's been inconsistent. Not, not to go on a, a little rant here, but I'll always watch You know, the studs go at it, even though they haven't been what they what they usually are. But Pete Alonso is the one bat that I'm excited to watch whenever I turn the game on. I'm hoping Conforto could continue to to become a little bit more of a consistent all-around player. But right now, Pete, if it wasn't for Pete Alonso, geez, you'd hear crickets at City Field. Yeah, for sure. And last year, before he got called up, he actually spent last year in the minor leagues with Double A Binghamton and Triple A Las Vegas. But the first episode of this podcast, I actually spoke to somebody who worked for Double A Binghamton. One of my friends, uh, Steve Popolowski, he works in sales for them, and he's got had up close experience with Pete Alonzo over the first couple of months of the year. Let's go back to the beginning of the podcast, episode one, and let's hear what Pop had to say. Give us a little scouting report on Pete Alonzo. Uh, the kid can hit. I mean, from the day he showed up last year, we've got a, uh, you know, we're like most minor league ballparks. We've got two levels of, of outfield signage, and, uh, the first wall, of course, you clear that at the home run. Then there's a second wall, and uh, that those signs are probably 12 feet off the ground. And uh, he hit two, either his first game or one of his first couple games he was here, he hit two off this IBM sign, which is in West Center Field. It's got to be, you know, getting close to 400 feet out there. And, like, just we hadn't had a guy with power like that. You know, everything had been kind of about – Dom Smith and, and Ahmed Rosario, who are great players, but not that kind of power threat where they're just going to absolutely mash the ball. So from, like, day one, 
we're like, this kid can really rake, and he has not stopped. Even in April this year, when it was 35 degrees every night, and a lot of the guys were hitting in the low 100s, he was still hitting 330, 340. I mean, that's pretty good. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. Hey, it's a good scouting yeah. report. You yeah. sure? He may want to rethink sales. Yeah. Try to get into the scouting department. The Mets should look at him because I, I talked about in the last thing with, with uh, Will and Jack Clark that they have a problem valuing their own players. So uh, that was pretty spot on. Yeah, I and he's lived up to all that hype since he got here. I mean, towering home runs and like I've, I've said it before. I think he's the Met equivalent of Aaron Judge in terms of like just the pure power and excitement energizing the team. Now, the only reason why he doesn't get that recognition is because the team stinks. If the team was winning, then it'd be Pete Alonso, Pete Alonso, Pete Alonso. I can't wait for Pete Alonso the home run derby. You know that's coming. Fun fact. Yeah. I also have a little inside scoop from the Rumble Ponies. Cool. What's your What's your scoop? So my good friend Jacob Wilkins yeah. is now the voice, the play by play voice of the Rumble Ponies. Yeah. So he's he's with the team every single day, and uh, he's around the future Mets. Yeah. So you know you need a new Rumble Pony guy or another another addition. You could get a, a potential, a new potential guest to break down the future. That would definitely be something I consider because especially they got some good pitchers down there around the Rumble Ponies. Anthony Kay and uh, David Peterson are oh, lighting yeah. up. Oh yeah, and oh. that's top position player prospects there as well. Andres Jimenez. So that'd be worth, definitely worth considering in the future. We, we could work. We could. We could possibly work something out. Yeah, we'll talk about that off air a little more. But let's let's continue on the clips here. One of our one of my favorite guests I've had on this podcast date was Rick Sarone, the former Yankee PR director and current, Slick Rick. Slick Rick, former, current editor of Baseball Digest. Rick, I will admit, has the lengthiest clip in here, so bear with it because he goes into very deep, detailed stories. They are fantastic stories. I left, I cut this down. It's about two minutes and change, and this is a great part of a great story about. His time working with the Yankees, working under George Steinbrenner, and right after Joe DiMaggio died, they were in spring training. They were work, talk, working about plans for a memorial for him at the ballpark down there. So let's take give it to Rick, and he'll pick up the story from here. This is from episode 26, our holiday special. I said, I think there needs to be a really good-sized floral arrangement uh, out there you know, that we put out there to, to, to mark this sad occasion. Now, I'd already been out there and measured the height of the thing, and the, so I knew exactly what I wanted. So he said, that's a great idea. Get right on that. And with that, his secretary walked in and said, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but I heard you getting, you, you want flowers, and the woman who does the flowers in the suites, uh, she's here. Do you want me to send her in? Yes, yes, send her in, send her in. So this young woman comes in, yes, and tell her what you need. And I said, well, I want to have a Three, 28 inches high. By it needs to be this. And I give her very specific. And um, she goes, okay, I'll get right on. I said, now, how long will that take, do you think? I could probably get that here within an hour to an hour and a half. Well, it's 8.30 in the morning. That's fine. So she goes off, right? So um, I go back to my office, and uh, 10 minutes later, 20, half hour later, the phone rings, and it's the front desk. And the woman says, uh, the woman from the florist is, is in the lobby for you? I'm like, okay. So I walk down there, and she's holding this little cup of flowers, like this little tiny thing that's in her fits in her hand. I'm like, oh, boy. She goes, before you say anything, this is not the, the, the floral arrangement you requested that's on its way, but I went around the suites, and I pulled some flowers. Do you want to put this out there until the real ones arrive? 
And I said, no, I don't, because I don't want people thinking that that's something we would put out there. You know, that this that's not, I'd rather just wait till the real one. Well, with this, who comes walking through the lobby, seeing the two of us with this little cup of flowers, is Mr. Steinbrenner. And he goes absolutely bonkers. You idiot, this is not what I wanted. This is this is outrageous. I can't I can't trust you to do anything. Go back to your office and I'll never forget these words as I I'm walking away laughing. This, this is hysterical. And as I'm walking to the elevator, I hear from behind me, Sarone, that's it. You're off the flower detail. <laughs> you can't make that up. Off the, you're off the flower detail. <laughs> you can't make that up. That is a phenomenal story. I was story was great, and there's more because he got. I took another two minutes for him to get to the conclusion of the story, but basically the whole thing gets sorted out. He gets he gets a call from uh, the secretary front off front desk again. They're saying, "Hey, uh, Steinbrenner wants to see you in his suite." So he goes up there, and Steinbrenner's like makes a point to come across the room to apologize to him for. He's uh, like, "Rick, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have treated you like this, and it was my fault. I'm sorry how I reacted." Apparently. He, Hal Steinbrenner was in the suite, and he's like a kid at that point. Or like I say, it was like what his thirties, like maybe I don't know how old he was in the nineties, but apparently he nearly spit out whatever he was drinking. He was shocked his dad actually apologized or something. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. That I mean, you talk about a guy who has war stories and has been around Major League Baseball. There's no better guest than uh, Slick Rick Cerrone. Yeah, I'm hoping to talk to Slick Rick Cerrone again this summer. Hopefully that'll happen at some point. Still working on how that's gonna happen. May not be on this podcast. Maybe a, a different vehicle that will be just. just teased out later i like that yeah i like that now people are are wondering what is mike phillips teasing next what does he got what's he cooking up there's a lot of things i'm cooking up so we'll Ooh. keep we'll keep an eye on, on some of these tease things tease for me too because yeah. i'm not even too sure what you're talking about yeah we're still working on some of those so we'll talk more off air okay all right and let's stick with the sports here we'll go to one of our, my favorite ranters our good friend pete Considori. oh sweet pete sweet pete the hockey guy who basically if we first came on the podcast way back when, it was him and Mary, our friend Mary Motiga, doing hockey. Mary's not been able to come back on since, but Pete has been on every time we need. I needed the hockey. He's coming on the next segment, actually doing the previewing the Stanley Cup Finals and breaking that down. But at the trade deadline, on episode thirty-six of the podcast, he went bananas about the Columbus Blue Jackets, who decided to basically put this in football terms. So basically, like they had these two big marquee free agents. They're on the fringe of the playoff race these guys know locks to resign instead of flipping them off for more assets to try and get ready for a rebuild they went all in traded draft picks and prospects to get rentals here to try and win the cup this year and pete was not a fan let's hear what pete had to say about that back in episode 36 columbus blue jacket fans if i were you i would be terrified <laughs> And the reason why I say this is because your GM did nothing with Panarin and nothing with Bobrovsky. Now, yes, he did get Duchesne, amazing player. He did get Dezingle, amazing player. He got experience on the blue line with a little bit of grit in Adam McQuaid. He got a backup goaltender that has shown he can play starting minutes in Keith Kincaid. But what happens if you don't win this year? You lose Panarin. You lose Bobrovsky unless, by some miracle, Panarin goes, yeah, I'm going to stay. But guess what? Duchesne's contract is up. I think Dezingle's contract is up also. He's going to be a free agent. Those two rentals, what what exactly 
is going through the mind of this GM? Is he trying to show Columbus, hey, we're going to try to win this year? But does he see who's in the East? Does he see who's in the East? You have the Toronto Maple Leafs. You have the Tampa Bay Lightning. You have the Boston Bruins. Let's go to your division. You have the Washington Capitals. You have the Pittsburgh Penguins. You have the New York Islanders who have been on fire lately. You have the Carolina Hurricanes who, eh, you could beat. Where are you going? You're not, you're not winning the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. You're not winning the Stanley Cup. Spoiler alert. They did not win the Stanley Cup this year. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. How many of those guys are still on the team? Well, the, the season ended. They won, They actually won a round. They swept the Lightning in the first round, who had won the President's Trophy. They oh. they uh, got swept by the, They got beat by the Bruins in the second round. The Bruins are in the Cup final right now. All of those guys he mentioned, I think, are going to be free agents after the season. Panarin, Bobrovsky, all of them are going to be free agents. So they threw all their chips in the middle of the table and got one playoff round victory out of it. <laughs> Hope it was worth it. Yeah. And Pete got so mad at that, which is amazing, because Pete's not a big Blue Jacket fan. Obviously, Pete's a big Ranger fan. So. Pete's passionate, though. Yeah. You could hear the passion in Pete's voice and yeah. his, in those pipes. Uh, yeah. you, you could definitely te- – and he was spot on. I mean, there you go. You make you you sweep the lightning, Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Your season's over. And now you're going to have close to, what, five, six marquee players that are probably all going to leave your team for yeah. better markets and more money. Yeah, it's not a, not an ideal situation there. No, no, no they definitely didn't uh, play their trips properly there. No, Pete went out for about a solid four minutes on the Blue Jackets. So if you want to go back and listen to that, that's on that podcast. So that's about thirty six. So Pete, sweet Pete knows his Blue Jackets. Sweet Pete knows his hockey. Period. Bingo. Yeah, and last but not least, get dabble on the entertainment side a little bit because I have been known to do stuff on pop culture every now and then. So. I usually bring in like some people for this. Like John Stanko is a new addition to this front. He's been doing movies the last couple of weeks. But this show's original pop culture correspondent is Sandra Rose, our friend from the MassCom program here at Iona College. And we actually broke down Netflix on that same episode that Pete was on, episode 36. That was the two-hour episode of this podcast. So hopefully this one's not as long, but we'll That's a long one. Yeah, that was that's still the longest one this show has ever produced, so we're going to dive into, real quick, Sam and I breaking down what happens to Netflix after the Marvel shows all go off, how they stay relevant. Talk specifically about the movies angle they're pursuing. Here's what we were discussing that day. One interesting idea that happened. So, like, a lot of people are upset that Netflix can have these, like, you know, it's not like the Warner Brothers or, you know, MGM Studios. It's, like, Netflix. Yeah. So, they're, I think that they're not unrelevant. I think maybe they're going to switch more to, like, movies so they can compete more in these like prestigious awards yeah, exactly yeah I'm, like, I'm, I'm curious like if bird box will end up getting will be, will being like considered for awards next year I, I wonder <laughs> i mean that was a really good movie i still have not seen it yet oh it's interesting yeah. I, I don't because i can't i don't want to say anything about it it's yeah. bird box it's very interesting yeah. sandra bullock's awesome all i know is there's a bird box challenge and that's all i, all oh I my remember God. <laughs> wait it's kind of like the movie so maybe yeah. there's some spoilers yeah. <laughs> So I, that's, that's all I got. I know there's some sort of Bird Box channel. I've not seen it yet. It's on my list. It's, I literally put it in the list section of Netflix. So. Either watch it during the day or, like, watch it with somebody because when you're alone in the dark, it's like, oh, jeez. Like, <laughs> kind of like if you're watching A Quiet Place alone. Yeah, it's spooky. I <laughs> yeah. watched that on an airplane, yeah. and I, like, was – it was everything was quiet anyway, so yeah. it was, like – overly spooky and i think i that was my biggest regret being on a seven hour flight <laughs> i can't believe you'd watch a quiet place on, a, on an airplane <laughs> i was running out of movies i was <laughs> like okay i haven't seen this one i haven't yeah. seen that one i watch a lot of movies so that's my problem yeah we can go down the rabbit hole in some of those pop culture segments on the podcast they're a lot of fun did you ever end up watching it i have not watched it yet it's still sitting in my netflix list i've been too busy <laughs> i haven't watched it yeah 
So uh, we're, we're in the same boat. We're not getting spoiled on this. Nothing Sam said spoiled anything Yeah, for me there. So I, I'm actually glad you played that clip and you didn't give anything away. I'm glad she didn't give anything away because if she did, I would have been like, all right, I'm done. No interest anyway, yeah. so I don't have to waste my time. Now I may still be a little intrigued. Yeah. I, the thing that was interesting to me about this, the reason why I include it, is the whole idea of watching A Quiet Place. Have you seen that movie? No. No. Basically, the whole point of the movie is that it's a, basically like a horror movie where there's, there's no dialogue at all. So basically just relying on the action and like watching like the creepy background music and all that. Well, yeah, I would hate that. Imagine trying to watch that on an airplane. I'd be terrified. <laughs> I'd be terrified. I couldn't I couldn't believe what she said she watched on the airplane. I'm like, I, I, I would want to get off the plane at ASAP. Yeah. ASAP. Yeah, that was that was definitely fun. But there's a lot of pop cult stuff has popped up through the year through the uh, months here. So done some Netflix, Space Jam. We did a whole episode on Avengers Endgame. That was also fun. You're you're diving in into all territories here, Mike. Yeah. So that was the highlights of the first fifty. Hopefully, the next fifty will be just as fun, Joe. Hopefully, we'll see you a lot of times on the next fifty. I really appreciate you appreciate you coming on today, Mike. Anytime. You know my number. Yeah, I do have your number. And let's give out your social media handle again for people who want to follow you on Twitter. All right, so follow me on Twitter at Joe, double underscore. Do not forget the double, folks. If you don't put the double, you won't find me. And then it's my la- my last name, so get your pen. Get your pen out. It may take a little bit. Okay. D-A-L-O-I-S-I-O. So Joe, double underscore, D-A-L-O-I-S-I-O. All right, Joe. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. MP, anytime, brother. All right. That was episode 50's Clip Show with Joe D'Alizio. Up next, two-minute drill, hockey, and Stanley Cup finals with Pete Considori right after this. We are back this week's two-minute drill. We are going to preview the Stanley Cup Finals. You guys heard a clip from NBC Sports of Game 1. The Bruins come back from a 2-0 deficit, win 4-2, up 1-0 in the best-of-seven series. Time to break it all down with our hockey guy, Pete Considori. Pete, welcome back. How are you? Thank you for having me. Stanley Cup Final time, finally. Uh, we're, we, are, we are approaching June very quickly. Saturday is June 1st, so we, we're in Stanley Cup Final time. Uh, yesterday's game. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty physical one. Yeah, certainly physical one. We'll get to the game in a second. Let's recap how these two teams got here. So let's start with the Bruins, who swept away the Carolina Hurricanes, and it's a weird cycle of sweeping in the East because the Islanders swept the Penguins, Hurricanes swept the Islanders, Bruins swept the Hurricanes. So what was the big key for Boston to just completely decimate Carolina? Well, you know what, Boston. Boston had the experience. I think uh, Tuukka Rask has been playing phenomenally too. I I think overall the Hurricane had a little too much time off. I think that's what's been going on with this Stanley Cup playoff series, especially with the sweep teams. Um, we saw it with uh, Columbus. They swept the Tampa Bay Lightning. Boston Bruins had no problem with them. Um, we saw it with you know. 
Carolina being the Islanders. Who would have thought the Islanders would have been beaten by the Carolina Hurricanes? Um, look, kudos to the Hurricanes for going as far as they did. However, um, the Boston Bruins have the experience, they have the talent, um, and they're fairly healthy right now. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of injuries behind the scenes we don't know about. Um, we had a suspension from McAvoy one game, but that didn't seem to pose a problem. Um, and they complete the sweep, the Boston Bruins. Um, it's kind of funny how how the Eastern Conference has gone with those sweeps, right? Like you just said, the Islanders swept the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then the Hurricanes swept the New York Islanders. And now the Boston Bruins swept uh, the Hurricanes. So you would think that maybe the St. Louis Blues would sweep the Bruins, but that ain't the case. They get the uh, the first win, like you said, 4-2. Yeah, and odds of the Blues are mid. One thing we touched on a little bit, we really haven't dove into depth on, is that like back on New Year's Day, they were the worst team in the National Hockey oh, it, League. It's it's been a complete one eighty, and now they're in the Cup final. Oh, this is you know what this is a this is a great great learning experience for anyone that doesn't understand the Stanley Cup playoffs or or, or ice hockey and and the dynamic. The same Blues Blues were were just having a terrible awful season. Tarasenko couldn't find his game. Um, Allen was playing like garbage in that and then here comes Bennington or Winnington as we like to call him now um Jordan Bennington has been fantastic as a rookie goaltender fantastic and honestly if it wasn't for him in net rallying the troops if you will saying hey look we we can win games I got you in the net you guys have to help you know on forward and on the blue line too they they've been producing a lot Tarasenko's found his game he's been playing very very well this past game, like we'll get to in a little bit, not so much uh, of that kind of rallying together, if you will, the St. Louis Blues have had. Um, but they thrive off adversity. They they really take a step back and go, they don't think we could do this, but we can. And like you said, January 1st, completely different team. I mean completely. If you, if you drop someone in time on January 1st and said, hey, that team's going to be in the Stanley Cup final against the Bruins, they'd be like, no, you're kidding me. That, they, <laughs> that's not true. Um but yeah, they're in it. We have a rematch of the the famous Bobby Orr goal, um, Bruins versus St. Louis Blues. I believe that's the last Stanley Cup final the Blues were in was when Bobby Orr won it for the Boston Bruins. So that's a long uh, time ago. It's a long time ago. So I would like to see the Blues win, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So the Blues anyway get off to a great start last night. They jumped out the two nothing lead, end up giving it all away. Boston goes up three two in the third. They get the empty netter to make it a four two game. So. How do you think this is going to affect the Blues? I mean, that, knowing that they basically had that game in the bag for a period and a half and they just completely gave it away. I, I think they're going to come back strong for game two. I really think that the Blues are probably going to get this win um, only because judging by how the Blues have played and how Jordan Bennington has played, um, I think he looked great last night. Like I told you before, I saw the, the second half of the game and some highlights. I think he looked great. Um, I think the team shut down a little bit as a whole, Jordan Bennington and, and uh, the team as well. Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports was at that game, and he said something very interesting that I agree with. And a lot of people say this. A 2 nothing lead in sports is the worst lead you can have, uh, especially in hockey, I feel. Um, two goals, you think you have, you have some comfortability. You feel, okay, it's only two goals. It just kind of slipped away, right? So, so that two goals turns into, uh, into four goals for the Boston Bruins. Yeah, it does. It's just, you just kind of let ease off the gas pedal just a little bit. You're like, yep. okay, we got some safety. We don't have to be as Chris. And then before you know it, gone. Gone. And and that's what happens in the playoffs, especially Stanley Cup final. Boston Bruins stepped up their physicality a great deal in the second half of that game. Um, and, and like you said, you, you kind of almost – 
play on your heels a little bit. You're just kind of waiting for them to do something, saying, okay, we have a two-goal lead. We're comfortable. We just have to defend. You got to keep going at them like it's a tie game, like it's a 0-0 game. And you have to keep, in my opinion, you have to keep going after them like you're down a goal. Yeah. Um, desperation is key, I think, as well in the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, we didn't see that desperation, but I think the Blues are going to bounce back. I think the Blues do a really good job at that, and Jory Bennington is probably going to have a phenomenal game uh, for game two. All right, let's take, let's take a quick breakdown of the series for each team. What's the biggest key for the Bruins to, to, to raise the cup? Uh, staying healthy. Um, Char got a little hit on the on the forearm, cut himself up. Obviously, he didn't break anything, as far as I know. Um, you know, I think the key is staying healthy. They need McAvoy in the lineup. They need Pasternak. They need Marchand. Marchand, I don't. We didn't know if he was going to play Game One. Um, he skipped the practice for maintenance, and then he left the ice early for the morning skate that game. So everyone was kind of like, "Is Marchand hurt? He may not be a hundred percent." But of course. That doesn't get released until after the series. Um, so I think the key to the Bruins is to stay healthy, and Tuka Rask needs to still be a brick wall um, because the St. Louis Blues are no stranger to taking shots. Okay, let's go to the Blues for a minute. What's the key for them? Remember you said the last round the Carolina should try and tweak Boston. That obviously did not work. Assuming St. Louis take a different tack. Yeah, I think I think St. Louis needs to up their physicality a little bit more. Um, I saw Perron was getting into it with Krug a little bit last night, um, where Krug came in and actually, you know, someone say some say it's a charge or not. Uh, you know, I think it's a good check. The St. Louis, I can't remember who, but on the other end, St. Louis Blues touched the puck. Once he touched the puck, Krug came in and, and whacked him pretty hard. Um, you know, Stanley Cup Finals, I think that was a clean check. However, I, you know, we're seeing people trying to get under the skin, but I also think that the Bruins are the wrong team to do it to a little bit. Just because you get under their skin, that's probably just going to make them better because it's the Boston Bruins. I mean, Marshawn is, is like the guy to get under someone's skin. That's the game they play. They're, they're used to it. They know, listen, if we get them to bite a little bit, take a penalty, our power play is going to be huge. So they need to stay out of the box, but they need to be a little more physical. And I also think that their style of play is it needs to be more speed because the Boston Bruins, in my opinion, is a little bit of a grinding kind of game um, with the exceptions of the faster guys on that team, obviously. Obviously, Pasternak is a huge sniper goal scorer for that team as well. But I think if you combo the speed with the physicality, I think that's the, the mixture uh, that the uh, – excuse me, I was going to say Jordan Bennington because he was on my mind um, – the St. Louis Blues need. Talk about Jordan Bennington. He also has to play well, too. I mean, both goaltenders have to play well for a series to go well. If you don't have goaltending, you really don't have a series. So I think that's the key for the Blues. All right, so let's, let's go on record and make a prediction. Who do you think is going to be raising the Stanley Cup in a couple of weeks? I really, really want the Blues to win. And I feel like they have a really good shot. But every time I pick a team to win, they don't. Uh, it, it's it's almost like the Drake curse, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say the Boston Bruins. Um, I'm going to go based on their, their physicality, their talent, and the immense more amount of experience they've had in the Stanley Cup playoffs and the Stanley Cup finals in recent years. The St. Louis Blues have always been that team that doesn't make it past that first or second round. They always kind of fall short. Um, they're finally at the the big time you know, competition. The Boston Bruins have been there. They won a Stanley Cup in 2011. Their experience is probably going to win this out. Unfortunately, as much as I want the Blues to win, I think the Boston Bruins take this in at least five games. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think I took the Bruins last round. I said they're probably going to win the Cup after what they did and getting past the uh, Red Hot Blue Jackets. So, like, they get there. That'll be the third straight sports championship for this Boston. So our friend Jonathan Stank will be very happy. I know. I, as much as I love and respect Stanko, I just I can't stand as a New York fan seeing the Boston 
fans taking home a championship in some sort of fashion, NBA, NHL, NFL, uh, MLB, just taking them home one after another. I mean, look, uh, all the respect in the world to all the fans, but New Yorker fan here, New York Ranger fan in me is like, you guys better not win. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, like, if you're like a six-year-old kid in Boston, you probably got more chance than most of us will see in our lifetime. You're not a Yankee fan. Oh, absolutely. Listen, yeah. I'm, listen, I'm a Yankee fan, and and I know everyone's like, oh, you guys, you know, say is about all your championships. I saw maybe like two, yeah. three. I can't, I can't remember. It's not like I saw all 27 of them. You know, if I saw all 27 of them, yeah, all right, maybe it's 27, right? I'm yeah. doing that right. Uh, I I would be like, yeah, I, I could gloat about it a little bit. I was there for the whole run, but I, I don't think there's many people that have been there for the whole run. So you know, it it uh, it's it's interesting to be a Boston fan in this day and age. Like you said, as a young fan, all you know is winning at this point, right? Yeah. You know, I don't think you've seen a lot of losses. So uh, good for them. Good for the 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 Boston and and New England franchises. Yeah, but the six year old Boston kid probably has at least like six or seven championships. I have. A whopping zero. <laughs> well, the Rangers won in '94. I was not a fan yet. Well, I have, in terms of actually watching the. I team, mean, I was two. Was <laughs> I really a fan then? No, but you have Yankee World Series championships. Yeah, yeah, you, you, we, have, we, you have a couple of them. But but I'll tell you this: at, I am I am a a fake Yankee fan. I will root for the Yankees. That's my team. But if they don't win the World Series, I'm not going to be upset. You know, because baseball is not really my sport. I enjoy going to the games. I enjoy watching every once in a blue moon. I like I said, root for the Yankees, but like if the Boston Red Sox won it again, I wouldn't be. Yeah, Boston, you don't want to see him win, but it's not going to be like, oh, it's I a, have to go smash my car window now because uh, where, the where, Boston Red Sox won again. Whereas, like if the if the Islanders won the Stanley Cup, you go smash somebody's car. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't vandalize or commit any illegal acts. You go, you go, I would. You might, you might I would be pissed. You might, but, go, you might go to a gym and go punch a punching bag. Yeah, I, <laughs> I would go play hockey and take yeah. a couple slap shots against the against the glass. But yeah, uh, yeah no, exactly. It's it's because of the sport that I love, and I really hope Boston doesn't win this. Thing. Yeah. Speaking of the Islanders, they made one big acquisition. They brought they re-signed Brock Nelson before he hit free agency. Big good move for them, right? Yeah, Brock Nelson was drafted by them in 2010. It was a first-round pick, 30th overall. Um, he's been with them since. His career numbers are pretty good. In 480 games, you have 124 goals and 117 assists for a total of 241 points. I didn't memorize this. I'm reading it off my phone right now. I'm going to be honest with the folks. Um his plus minus was twenty, which is which is good. He's been on the ice for twenty more goals than he's and then he's been on the ice for that he uh, that he let in. Or, well, he's not the goalie, but you, you know what I mean. He wasn't on the ice for the goals against. Um, you know, he's he was on the ice for more goals for than goals against. So he's plus twenty. I was not impressed with his playoff run though. He was a negative two with only he had four goals, which is pretty good in eight games. It's about a you know half a goal a game. Um, zero assists though. He really wasn't there. Um, I don't think as as much as as an Islander fan want him to. I still think it's a great move for the Islanders. Lou Lamarillo obviously sees obviously sees uh, his loyalty to the team and and his hardworking ethic. Um, he's still young. He's 27 years old. He still's got a lot of years left in him. So uh, good move, and uh, you know the Islanders finally lock up number 29 before free agency. Yeah, they do that. The Rangers. Also, replace Glenn Sater as president. They bring back John Davidson, longtime broadcaster, the architect of the Columbus Blue Jackets, who you are s- such a big fan of. <laughs> hey, nothing against the Blue Jackets. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love him. I, I think it's great that he's back. Um, I also love the work ethic and that he knows right from the beginning when 
the event that they had, I don't know, a week ago, a week, week and a half ago, he the first thing he says is like, yeah, the work has already started. I've been looking at stuff. We've been looking at things with Jeff Gordon, uh, how we're going to draft, stuff like that. I, you know, I think the mixture of him and Gordon is going to be fantastic. We have the second overall pick. I'm a little not concerned because I would love to have Hughes. I'm thinking maybe Capo Caco is moving up in the draft board a little bit. I, I tweeted this out a little bit uh, earlier in the month, um, a couple weeks ago, about how he's doing so well in the Worlds. Yeah. And someone came back to me and saying, like, look, the Devils need that center in, in Hughes. Hughes is still the first obvious first number one. But Hughes didn't do much in the Worlds. And, it, yeah, Capo Caco is, is, is used to the ice surface. He's used to that playing. He's got more room. But, but it it might look like a Heishier Nolan Patrick thing mm-hmm. going on because P- Patrick, yes, he I know it's different, and he brought this up too. Martino Puccio brought this up as well in the tweet. There was injuries involved with the Nolan Patrick Heishier Heishier pick, and I think that the Devils did the right thing by taking Heishier because Nolan Patrick is 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 injury prone. He's a good player, but he's injury prone. I, it's so close. Like I feel like if I'm the GM of the Devils, I'm looking at Capo Caco and going, I could take him. Like I I know he's not the center like Jack Hughes, but like I could take him and have no problems with my lineup. So look, Jack Hughes is still the number one, but I think with Gordon and um, Davidson, I think it's going to be a great pair, and I think we still got Kako too. But that still, yeah. If you look at it too, I, you see there are lots of connections to the. Uh Two Stanley Cup teams with uh, Davidson picking players and Gordon picking a lot of players who were on the Bruins and and uh, David Quinn coached several of these players at Boston University. Well, here's the problem: they're not on the Rangers. <laughs> so, so what what worries me is that we're developing these talents or we're not doing a good job developing these talents, um, and they're going off to a team that can speak their their language, if you will, and they start to become really really good. I'm not saying that to disrespect the the picking strategies of Davidson or or Gordon because obviously they saw potential and they see what these players can do. But I think the 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 main thing that's different now is like you said coach Quinn is in the mix now. Coach Quinn is a university um has NHL experience as well, but he he has university experience which is so key in 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 developing young talent. If you don't know how to develop 18-year-olds out of high school, um, to play at a collegiate level and then to be drafted by the NHL, um, you're not going to be able to do the same with people coming out of juniors, people coming out of, of different leagues around the world. So, you know, the three of them together, I'm excited, but we have to see. A player could flop, a player could be amazing, and we pick them in the third round. You never know. All right, that was Pete Castori on all the hockey. Pete, thanks for coming by. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Always fun talking hockey. We're at the end here. Yeah, we are at the end. Before I let you go, you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at PJConsidori29. That's C-O-N-S-A-D-O-R-I. You can see me rant with Martino a little bit about this uh, Capo Caco thing that's on there. I do a bunch of retweeting as well. So, yeah, give me a follow. Yeah, Martino on the show, beginning of the show, talking NBA playoffs. You guys are the bookends of this episode. All right, they yeah. listen. I I will I will share any type of stage with Martino. He's he's one of the best. Uh, he does really well, and and all the respect to him. John Stanko, he's another one. Um, Sam DeRosa, everyone everyone that that participated in your podcast this year has been has been a class act and, and absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, been a very good group, and it's nice to sort of like recognize a lot of these people as we hit fifty episodes. Hopefully see more of you guys over the next fifty. Absolutely, and congratulations on the fiftieth episode. That's awesome. Yeah, I, and again. 
I don't know if you heard. You have not heard this yet, but you were in the clip show. Yes, I made it, <laughs> guys. I made it. Yes, you did make it. But that's gonna do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guests, Martina Puccio, Will Schneiderhan, Jack Clark, Joe Dalizio, and Pete Considori for all coming by to talk sports this week. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at how remarkable it is that the New York Yankees are in first place despite all the injuries they've dealt with, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms and you will find the podcast. You can go back and listen to some of the old episodes. We played some of the clips with Joe today from the old episodes. The entire back catalog is there. You can go check that out. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings in order to help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with the hashtag depth even at the end of this week's show. Next week, we're going to talk a little more baseball. I'll get into the French Open again. I'll catch up on what's happened the first week at Roland Garros and more. Until then, I'll be a better week than Milwaukee Bucks fans. Yeah!